0: John 2, 23 through 25. Again, that's John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. John two twenty-three. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray together. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have ordained strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. It is like you, Lord, to magnify the glory of your name and to triumph over your enemies through the weakest of childlike instruments. You will not be robbed of your glory. If any of us, vaunting himself above you, moves beyond where we should be, we will be cut down. So God, I humble myself under your mighty hand and ask that you would make your word glorious. Come, you do your powerful speaking as we have sung and prayed. Through Christ, I ask it again. Amen. Now, you remember, perhaps, that the Gospel of John is clearly designed for a specific purpose. And it's stated in chapter 20, verse 31, These things are written that you may believe. And believing that he is the Son of God, have life in his name. So belief and life through Christ. That's the goal of this book. And, and so we've now been through chapter one and we're finishing chapter two today. And what we've seen is that he's right on task. Because in chapter one, verse 12, it says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. So believing in his name, child of God. We saw in chapter two, verse 11, after he turns the water into wine. It says, this is the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And third, in chapter 2, verse 22, after he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll build it up again, John comments his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed. So, 112, 211, 222, 2031, this is clear. This gospel is moving in a very specific direction. The aim is to tell the truth about the incarnate Son of God such that it would awaken faith in those who read it and hear it. That's why it's written, so that people could have eternal life and not perish. Which means that when we get to verse 23 of chapter 2, we are, I am, very unsettled. It's an unsettling three verses. After this theme is announced, this is unsettling. Because what it says, in essence, is Jesus knows everybody's heart, and when he looks into some hearts... Who are believing he sees that they're not believing and he won't deal with them he backs away from them. I'm not going to go with you I'm not going with you I'm not partnering with you I'm not your friend I'm not your Lord I'm not your Savior I'm not going with you and here they are believing this is why it's unsettling I mean the gospel is written to help people believe verse 23 says they're believing so it says, they're believing, and then verse 24 says, nope, don't have anything to do with you. He won't entrust himself to them, because he knows what's in them. Well, this is very unsettling. So what, do you do, what are we going to do with these verses? Two things. I see two focuses, and I think the Lord would have us do both. One, The knowledge that Jesus has in these verses is phenomenal. It is part of his divine glory, and we are supposed to worship him because of it. So I'm going to lift him up as an omniscient savior and try to help you admire his amazing knowledge. That's number one. Number two... The implication of what he knows about us is that he sees right through faith that isn't faith. And he talks about that. And we need to figure that out. Because I don't want to have that kind of faith. I don't want him looking into my heart, and I'm thinking I'm believing, and he says, you're not believing. I don't want that to be my portion. And so we're going to do those two things. So let's talk first about his knowledge and how glorious it is. Now, one of the reasons I think I'm key to hear this kind of thing is because I'm taking my cue from chapter 1, verse 14, every Sunday. Remember? We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 16 of chapter 1, And from this fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. So this this gospel, it seems to me, is pursuing faith by revealing glory. And the way faith happens is that when, by new birth, the eyes of the heart are opened to see in Jesus Christ self-evidencing divine beauty, that you cannot turn away from, when that happens, faith is born. So I'm asking at every text, what glory is being displayed here? And the glory that is being displayed here in verses 23 to 25 of chapter 2 is the glory of his knowledge. So let's read it. Start with me at the end of... Uh, Verse 24 goes like this. Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Verse 25. And needed no one to bear witness about any man, for he himself knew what was in man. There are three statements there that exalt the knowledge of Jesus. Jesus, the knower. The first one, end of 24, he knew all people. There's nobody on the planet Jesus doesn't know. knew them then, he knows them today. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Every one of the six billion people plus... He knows. Second, jump to the end of verse 25. He himself knew what was in man. He doesn't just know them on the outside. He knows everything about the inside. And third, beginning of verse 25... He needed, therefore, no one to bear witness about men. You need, you need witnesses. I need witnesses. If we want to figure out if somebody's guilty or innocent or did what we weren't there to, we didn't, we don't know what's inside people sitting in the courtroom. How do, how do we know? How do we do life? Answer, witnesses. We take, we, you want to get a job, you ask somebody about the company. They want to hire you, they ask somebody about you. We're always doing witnesses because we don't know anything. We're just so ignorant about what's inside of each other. And so we've got to get testimonies, we got to get witnesses, we got to get evidences. Jesus doesn't need any of that. This is what's glorious about Jesus. He can just do an in run right around all the human processes and go straight to your heart. He knows exactly what's in you. He doesn't need your wife, your husband, your friend, your roommate to tell you, tell him anything. He knows it all. This is a glorious knowledge that Jesus has, and we need to let it sink in. It's really quite remarkable and quite thorough and quite scary. In one sense, let me read you a verse from chapter 6. Jesus says to his disciples, verse 64, There are some of you who do not believe. So he's looking at his disciples. And he looks right at him in the face. He says, There are some of you who don't believe. How did he know that? Well, John, in the next verse, adds this For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. That means Judas was not a surprise. Jesus, do you remember, Jesus prayed all night before he chose the twelve. Prayed all night long, Lucas tells us, before he chose the twelve. Why? So that he could make sure there was a betrayer in the midst. you got to know a man really well to know he'll betray you after living with you for three years and being empowered by you to do miracles. That's why I said it's scary. What he does with it isn't what you think he's going to do with it. You need to let this sink in. The glory of the omniscience of Jesus. The one who matters most in the universe knows most about you. Therefore, there's always at least one person you can relate to, you must relate to, who knows everything about you. It's remarkable. You know, all of our relationships are based on ignorance. A little bit of truth, but mainly ignorance. I just look around this room, and some of you don't know it all. Some of you I've, I've known for 30 years. Um, and our relationship proceeds, though you don't know, ten thousand things that could be known about me and you don't know them and I don't know 10,000 things about you that I might know but I don't know massive levels of not knowing inform our relationships (laughs) it's just amazing all human relationships are that way there is one relationship in the universe that's not like that yours with Jesus He knows absolutely everything about you. Everything. And he's the only one you can relate to like that. Which means, here's an implication. It means that there's always somebody you can go to who understands you better than you understand yourself. Now that may not be attractive to you. It is to me. Because inside of me, for whatever reason, there are these deep longings to understand myself better than I do. I don't get myself most of the time. I don't like a lot of things about myself. Things come out of me I cannot account for. Things fail to come out of me that I can't figure out why they don't come out of me. I'm about to go home with my family and have a special dinner. When I'm sitting here singing... Standing here singing. I'm singing about everybody needs a Savior. Everybody needs compassion. I'm thinking, yes, yes, I do. And I want to go home, and I just want to say that to the family. We're going to have a big table full today. I saw the table set this morning. Good night. There must have been 18 place settings around this table. And I'm going to be sitting at the head of this table in an hour and a half or whatever it is from now. And, and uh, you know, over and over again, I get to that moment. Shut down emotionally. I wanna, I wanna lead with that kind of song. I wanna lead with that kind of emotion. I wanna be, I wanna feel there what I felt here and, and, and often it doesn't happen. What's that? I don't know, but I know one who knows. That makes a difference to me. It, it, it makes a difference to me that there's one person in the universe. You don't know. You couldn't explain to me. I mean, if I, if you were the best counselor in the world, you might give me some hint, but you wouldn't be able to get to the root of it all. But there is one who is totally in the know about that. He understands everything about my childhood, everything about the embarrass, embarrassing things that happened in the fourth grade that are probably glomming onto me sixty whatever years later and, So one of the implications of this amazing knowledge is that there is one person I can always go to who knows me to the bottom. There's one last implication of this. Therefore, there is always a person, one person and only one, who's willing to love me, knowing everything about me. I say only one person because the person who loves you most on this world doesn't know everything about you and won't in this life know everything about you, and therefore they don't qualify to do that. Only one person knows everything about you and is willing to love you. And the reason I say it like that, is willing to love you, that may sound a little strange to you. Why didn't you, just, why did you say it that way? Why didn't you just say loves you? I say it that way because as I read the Gospel of John, I learn that Jesus doesn't love everybody the same. For example, do you remember his prayer in John 17? He's praying to his father. And in verse 9, it says this. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus prays for his own, whom God has given him, his sheep, and he's not praying for the world. Call that intercessory love. So there is a kind of love. He loves the world one way, but he's doing this for his own. He's interceding for his own. Now, that's the kind of love I want. I don't want a general love that can let me go to hell. I want a specific love that covenants with me, prays for me, and gets me to glory. That's what I want. And God is willing to give you that. Will... Will you have it, is the question. John one twelve, to as many as received him who believed on his name, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. And therefore, if you are a believer, he loves you like that. He loves you like that. So I can say to those of you who are believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior and your treasure in this world and the next, knowing everything about you that nobody else knows, he loves you. So I conclude this first point, namely lifting up the glory of the knowledge of the Son of God and say, there's nothing like it. Anywhere in the universe, nothing. The knowledge that Jesus has of human beings surpasses the knowledge of all the books in all the libraries in all the world. He loves and he knows in a way like nobody else knows and nobody else loves. Worship him for that. Love him for that. Be amazed at him for that. Extol him for that. Follow him for that. Feed on that. Now, second point. One of the implications of that knowledge is he sees right into faith that isn't faith and exposes it. So let's go back to the text and see this. Now, remember, this is quite unsettling, at least to me, in a book that is designed to awaken faith. Because why would you want to mess it up? You know, why would you want to mix it up and confuse matters? If your goal is to help people believe John and Jesus, why do you bring up this issue of there's faith, but it's not really faith? That kind of confuses the matter. And, and it needs to be clarified. The only reason they would do this, the only reason Jesus would talk like this, is if if it weren't a part of his love for us. There is faith that is not saving faith. You don't want to have that. You don't want to go into eternity thinking you're a believer and you're not a believer. This is love here. Verse 23, second half of the verse, John chapter 2. Many believed in his name. When they saw the signs that he was doing, verse 24, instead of being thrilled about that, it says, Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew them. And what he knew, he didn't like and would not sit with, walk with, he wouldn't give himself. This faith in verse 23 has got something wrong with it. Something wrong here. And we need to figure this out. Because you don't want to be in the, you don't want verse 23 to be said of you. I saw his signs, I believed in his name, and he walked away from me. I thought you wanted me to see your signs, believe in you, and have eternal life. Why are you walking away? That's a very serious question. So, are there any clues in this text as to what's wrong with this faith in verse 23? I see two. One is the word signs. They believed in his name when they saw the signs. That's a pointer. It's not an answer. It's just a pointer toward the answer. And the second one is, let me stick in a parenthesis here. See if you know this. I'm sure the students know it, but maybe everybody doesn't know it. You know that in the in this book, the Bible, the chapter divisions and the verse divisions were added later. We know that. Everybody on the same page there. When John wrote John, he didn't he didn't put in verse numbers. And chapter divisions that was added by editors later just to help us get around in the letter just like when you write a letter you don't put verse divisions in the letter (laughs) you don't expect anybody someday to be quoting the verses in your letter which means when you're reading the Bible you should ignore them don't pay any attention For meaning's sake, it might help you know how much to read today, but as far as meaning goes, forget it. The chapter divisions get in the way more often than they help. That's not an overstatement. Here, it's in the way, big time. So scrap chapter 3 as a division marker, and you might get a second clue as to what's wrong in verse 23. What's wrong is that the people in verse 23, I think, are represented by Nicodemus. And Nicodemus appears on the scene immediately to illustrate the problem in verse 23. Okay, so let's, let's read and see if you see that. Starting at verse uh, 25 and then reading into chapter 3, which we will ignore the division of. Now there was a man, oops, sorry, I started late, too late. Um, For Jesus himself knew, I'm at the end of verse 25, Jesus himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs. That's the same word as back in verse 23, that you do unless God is with him. Now, that's pretty impressive faith. He's saying, you're from God. God is with you. He is enabling you to do wonderful works called signs. I believe that. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, you need to be born again. This faith is not what I'm after. You think I'm from God. You think God is with me. You think I do signs. You're right. And that's not faith. It's a kind of faith. Muslims believe in Jesus like that today. Jews believe in Jesus like that today. At least pious, orthodox ones. He's a prophet. He's... Um, from God. He's a miracle worker. God is with him. Muslims believe that. Jews believe that. Lots of secular people believe that. And Jesus says to all those people, you need to be born again because you can't even see the kingdom of God until you're born again. Well, what would born again do for you? I mean, what kind of faith? What's wrong with the faith? That's the question. So that's the first clue. Nicodemus comes on the scene as a person who has a lot of beliefs about Jesus, but Jesus says he needs to be born again, and so his belief isn't what's necessary. What else is wrong? Well, take that word signs in verse 23. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Is that a problem? Well, Nicodemus saw the signs, and he's blown away by how amazing they are, and he his faith rises to the level of, you're from God, and God is with you, and you're a faithful teacher in Israel, and and his faith is rising. What, what's wrong with sign-driven faith? Jesus warned against this. Sign-based faith is so precarious. It's precarious because of what's under it, and it's precarious because of where it's going. Let me illustrate. Go with me to chapter 7. I want to show you something. I did, what, what I saw years ago in Chapter 7 was so amazing to me, I've never forgotten when I saw it. I saw it in the spring of 1974 in a class with Oskar Kuhlmann in Munich, Germany. And when I saw it, for the first time, I was 20, I wouldn't do the math, I was born in 46, um, whatever I was. And there I was, I'd been reading the Bible all this time. And, and I'd never seen this. It's mind-boggling. And the light it sheds back on chapter 2, verse 23, is very bright. Chapter 7, verses 3 through 5, is talking about his brothers, Jesus' physical brothers. Let's what it says. So his brothers said to him, this is verse 3, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Does that make sense to you? That doesn't make sense. <laughs> Not at first. What? Let's try that again. If you do these things, go on up. Now you, you are a miracle worker. We've seen them. We've seen Capernaum. We've seen Cana. We've seen wine go to, I mean, water go to wine. We, come on, brother. Go up to Jerusalem and do these things so that everybody can see you and stop hiding yourself in the backwater of Nazareth and Capernaum and Canaan and Galilee. Get up and do the big stuff. Because they didn't believe on him. What? If, if they don't believe on him, what are they saying? This is really perplexing. And if you get it, you'll understand 223, 24, and 25. Because this, this unbelief in five is the same as the belief in 223. It's sign-driven, sign-seeking, sign-mongering faith. They believed. They believed their brother was a great teacher sent from God who could work miracles and ought to be swept up into a great movement of acclaim and praise and kingship. And they're the brothers, and they're going to be swept with him. Hmm. Hmm. And Jesus looks at that. John looks at that and says, That's not faith. Why? What's the root problem here? Now, there is a verse, I think, that nails the root problem. Just nails it. And it's chapter 5, verse 44. So you can go there with me if you want to see the nail driven through this issue. This one one stabbed me because I'm a... I'm a vain person. I'm a lover of the glory of men. I like people to say nice things about my sermons. I like compliments. I like to be paid attention to. I like to be liked. And I am born with that idolatry. So what, what's that got to do with faith? Verse 44 of chapter 5. It's a rhetorical question. You know how rhetorical questions work. The answer is so obvious you don't need to give it. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? What's the answer to that question? You can't. Let's make a statement out of it. You can't believe in me while you're seeking glory from one another and not seeking the glory that comes from God? Why not? Because faith consists in breaking that idolatry. Breaking the back of the praise of the love of man. When Jesus calls the person, he says, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and die with me you don't glut your addiction to self-exaltation when you follow jesus that's what his brothers were doing come on come on jesus go up there and get a name for yourself go up there and be the miracle worker that you are and we'll be riding into jerusalem on the wake of your fame Jesus looks at him and says, that's not faith. You remember when Jesus predicted to the disciples, I'm going up to Jerusalem and I will be handed over to the authorities and the elders will condemn me and the Gentiles will crucify me. And Peter jumps in and says, you will not, I will not let that happen. And, and, Pete, and Jesus swings on him and says, get behind me, Satan. Satan. Satan loves the glory of Jesus minus cross. And so did his brothers. And so did these folks in 223. They had seen signs. They had seen signs. and They love power and they love signs. This is our Messiah and he's going to do the signs for us and he's going to win the victory and he's going to establish the throne and we're going to be swept into victory to squash these Romans. And Jesus looks at all that and he says, I'm not going with that. I'm not walking with that. That's not the faith I came to produce it 's a faith it 's a faith. a lot of people think my miracles are are fake you don 't think they 're fake you 're believing in them it 's not the faith i 'm after so I think the point of this text on the on the sign part is that we today should be warned about sign chasing signs and wonder chasing here comes a new signs and wonder guru and they're off to florida they're off to georgia or they're off to california or they're off to toronto or, or wherever they're going they're just they're off chasing another set of signs and believe me i believe in miracles Don't anybody go out of here saying John Piper is one of those cessationists who thinks all the supernatural stopped after the apostles. I don't. God heals people today. God casts out demons today. God can raise the dead today if he wants to. But if your faith is based on signs and wonders you're a sitting duck for the next guru and the reason i put it that way is precisely because the bible puts it that way let me just read it to you i don't know when the second coming is going to happen but it's going to happen could happen in my lifetime and yours and there's some things that are going to happen they're already happening and i'll read you one this is a warning from Jesus to you and me. Matthew twenty four twenty four, False Christs and false prophets. So big time and little time, guys. False Christs and false prophets. Sun, moon considers himself to be Christ. False prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders. so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. The elect cannot be led astray, but oh, it's close. So powerful are the signs and wonders that are done by the false Christs and the false prophets that thousands of people are swept out of the church into allegiance, and they turn out to be John 2.23 believers. They were hanging on the signs. They were hanging on the music. They were hanging on the whatever. But they hadn't penetrated through the signs to the Savior. They hadn't seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. They had stuck on the externals, and they'd not broken through to the person himself and loved him. And on that score of love, let me read you one more. One more text. This one's from Paul from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, about what's going to happen before the second coming, and it's happening already. Paul said, 2 Thessalonians 2, 9, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. Now, that's a precursor to the Lord Jesus, a lawless one. A strong leader can reject the law of God and be lawless in the world. The, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and lying signs and wonders. I translate it that way. The ESV has false signs and wonders. The translation false signs and wonders sounds like they're not real. It sounds like they do, he's doing it with Microphones. Or mirrors. Rabbit out of a hat. It's a trick. It's not really a sign of war. It's a trick. That's not what's going on here. These are real. This is satanic power and deception here. These are lying signs and wonders. I'll keep reading. Verse 10. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. They, they believed. And they're swinging this way with this sign worker, and this way with this sign worker, and this way with this sign worker. And the next person comes along and does some amazing wonder. They'll flock to him, and then they flock to him because they didn't love the truth. Meaning, when they read John 1.14, it didn't happen. We have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from that fullness, we have received grace upon grace. Now that is a glory that is attracted by the signs and wonders that He does, but it's all pointing towards His person. Saving faith rests on the glory of the person of Jesus Christ. Remember 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4? The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Not the light of the gospel of the miracles of Christ. Miracles are meant to reveal who you're dealing with so that you love him, know him, cherish him so that he becomes the resting point. And when another prophet comes along, another Christ comes along doing greater miracles, perhaps, than the ones you've ever seen or come to terms with. You are so locked in to Jesus as self-authenticating, glorious Son of God. You cannot be swept away. You will not be one of those 223 believers because you have penetrated through the signs and wonders to the person and you rest in him. That's what the goal of this text is. Let me close by simply saying, wouldn't you think that if you were Jesus, And you knew what was in every heart in this room. Totally. You knew what was in every heart in this room. And you spotted that one of those hearts, sitting over here somewhere, was starting to go berserk. Had a knife in their pocket. And had resolved to stab you, me, the preacher. On the way out. If I knew that. Jesus does. I'd go out that door. (laughs) Wouldn't I? So why didn't Jesus go out that door? Why did he walk up to the man? And he's dead. He chose Judas. Here's the reason. What you would do with your omniscience and what he does with his are very different. He chose to use his omniscience to get himself killed. That's what he did. We think, if I just knew enough, I could avoid stock market problems. I could avoid infection problems. I I could avoid murderous situations. Why? I could have the best of all possible lives. But Jesus did the opposite. Knowing exactly what was in man, he walked into situation after situation where he got in trouble and finally got killed. And he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If you walked in here, unprepared to hear the truth that Jesus knows everything about you and hear it as good news and you have been wondering how could anybody regard that as good news if he knows everything about you here's the answer he uses his omniscience not to kill you but to save you that's what you're offered now if you will have it if you will receive him believe in his name then he died for you. He took the knife for you. He took the nails for you. He took the sword for you and the crown for you. And you are now on the brink of eternity. Let's pray. Father, we worship you and we worship your son, the Lord Jesus who knows us and knows all men and who knows everything about us and everything about everybody and we stand amazed and in awe of this knowledge. It is glorious to us. Nothing compares with it. We tremble at the thought that he knows us and then turning to him, the crucified one who died in our place so that we might know him without fear and we lay down our fear and we receive forgiveness and we receive acceptance and we receive love even though you know everything, everything about us. If any is afraid to do that, Lord, help them. Help them now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.